I don't know how many of you were maybe like me last week when the Goffs were here. You know, well, let me preface this. My favorite nativity, Susan and I collect nativity scenes, and my favorite one is a little plastic Charlie Brown nativity that sits on our hearth. And it sits on our hearth because it's low and accessible, okay? So when the kids are there, the grandkids are there, they can pick up Charlie Brown. I've replaced Linus's head a dozen times over the past few years. Glued his head back on, you know, with the crown on it. So we like that nativity there where the kids can play with it. So last week when Steve and Lena were here and, you know, their, their kids were so drawn to this nativity set here on the front. Right. You know, playing with the cross, playing with the nativity. I thought, oh, boy, there goes the camel. So, you know, we're thinking about that. You know, I, I was thinking about that because we have these these serene, picturesque images of the birth of Jesus. And instead of starting the New Testament, instead of starting this picture of God's new covenant with us, instead of starting it with this beautiful picture of a manger and Bethlehem and the angels and baby Jesus laying there, Matthew starts with a genealogy, all right? If the King James would say the begets, you know, so-and-so begets so-and-so, so-and-so begets so-and-so. And there's several paragraphs of, of ancestry and genealogy. What in the world were you thinking, Matthew? What, what is this? I don't know if any of you have watched the Chosen series that's on, um, and it, it's just tremendous. It is so good. And I've been attracted to Matthew, the character Matthew. He's, he's just a unique individual in that series. Um, he's, how would you describe him? Because um, Susan, Susan and I, she got me to watching that. Yeah, he does fall into the autism spectrum, you know. He's, he's, of course, he's a tax collector, details, things like that. So Matthew focuses in on these details. And, and, and here's why. If we're ever, ever going to understand what we have pictured before us in our nativity sets, if we're ever going to understand who Jesus is and why he came, we have to understand the Old Testament. And we have to understand all of the Old Testament. And we have to go way back, way back. Now, Luke takes us back all the way to Adam. Matthew takes us back to Abraham. Because if we're going to understand who Jesus is and what it is he came to do and what he is doing now, we have to understand what Matthew is talking about when he says that Jesus is the son of Abraham. And that he is the son of David. And that this book of genealogy, the genesis of Jesus, we have to understand that or we will not get it. We just won't understand anything about who Jesus is. And so last week we saw how this boring part of the Bible that we often read over or skip or skim through is really good news for us. Because it shows us that God makes promises and keeps those promises and that he uses people and individuals that we would never imagine 
could be used to bring about his purposes and bring about what it is that he's doing. We saw last week that the yearning that we have within us to to have a family and to know who we are and whose we are goes back to the promise that he made to Abraham, that in Abraham and in his descendants, his descendant, with a capital D, in Jesus, that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And as Paul tells us in Galatians, that through faith in Christ, then we become a child of Abraham. We are a part of that family. Well, today we'll see that if we're going to be a part of that family, that we also then have to submit to and follow the king of that family. The, the ruler, the one who is over that family. Being blessed in God's family means that we are submitting, called to submit, and to surrender to the king. Now, this is a real challenge for us. I've talked to Jason about it. I've, I've talked to several people about it. This is just a struggle for us as Americans. We have a hard time, I believe, at least I'll say I have a hard time, Understanding this idea of a king and a kingdom and a monarchy and understanding the implications of this lineage, you know, being passed down from father to, to, to daughter or son, you know, whatever the case may be. If we look at the monarchy today in Great Britain, we have a hard time with that in America. And right. So the closest I mean, the closest sometimes we can come is this idea of, of a political dynasty, okay? I mean, thinking about that, there seems that in the American history, there are certain families, if you will, that seem to have within their DNA this ability to succeed in politics, or at least survive in politics, all right? The first one comes to mind is the Adams family. No, not not Lurch Adams family, okay? Not that Adams family. Some of you guys watch way too much TV and don't read nearly enough history, if that's the first thing that came to mind when you think about the Adams family, okay? Um, but, but John Adams was one of our founding fathers. He was the vice president for George Washington, and his primary advisor was his wife, Abigail. And so he served as president, and then they raised their son, John Quincy Adams, who also then was a president. So we look back to this Adams family as one of those, they seem, they seem to do well, and they continue to have offspring, they continue to have family members that are part of the American government. Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt, FDR, and others within that family seem to have that ability to survive and thrive in a political. We go back to the Kennedy family. Now, only one of the Kennedys was president, of course, our 35th president. Um, I believe his brother would have been had he not been assassinated. And Kennedys have been involved in politics from Joseph Kennedy, you know, who was a senator. So the Kennedys, of course, the Bush family. But is there something in their DNA that just makes them successful in politics? There's nothing hereditary there in the sense that no one is obliged to elect one of them, right? We understand that. And so when we see the queen seated on her throne in the United Kingdom and see her husband sitting beside her, or if you go back to George VI, her, her father, Bertie, as we might know him from, from the movies, you know, we as Americans struggle with this concept of being in a kingdom. We really struggle with it in America. We want to politicize our faith, or we want to in some way identify our faith with a political party, and 
the scriptures will have nothing to do with that. It, it, it just have nothing to do with that. And so that's the struggle. All right. I've really struggled with that over the last really months just thinking about this. It's been something that's been on our minds. So why would Matthew say the genealogy of Jesus, the genesis of Jesus, the beginning of Jesus, and take us back first to Abraham and then to David? Or really, I I switched the order last week. I went Abraham first. But why would we go back to David? Well, because God made a promise to David that his kingdom would be eternal. So there would always be a descendant of David on the throne. Well, what throne? We're talking about the nation of Israel. Well, we are in the Old Testament talking about the nation of Israel. But again, from a New Testament perspective, seeing what we saw, for instance, in Galatians last week, we're not talking about a national entity. We're talking about a spiritual kingdom. We're talking about an eternal family, the family of faith that's united in Christ. And God made a promise to David that he would always have a descendant on the throne. And the primary purpose of his genealogy is to prove first to the Jewish readers of Matthew's day and then to show us today that this Jesus is the promise fulfilled. All right. The promise that God gave to David is fulfilled in Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the long awaited one who is the promise. He is the promise himself. And, and I believe we long as, as people Not only to be loved and cherished within a family, but we long to be led well. We long to be cared for. We long to be safe and to know that we are not only cared for, but that that person who is leading us has our best interest at heart. That our well-being and not necessarily their well-being is what drives them. And, and that's the promise that God gave to David. There will be one like that. There will be a king like that. You'll have a descendant like that. So, so look back at, at Matthew's genealogy. Let's, let's, let's read it again. Okay? I don't, now nah, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we will go back to Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab and Amminadab, the father of Nashon and Nashon, the father of Salmon and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So we saw last week, man, what a what a list of, of names and, and what a history, what a legacy, what a family tree. There's some rotten fruit on this tree, it seems. In, in some of these characters and some of these individuals. Well, guys, it doesn't get any better, and, you know, as we read on. Um, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Notice that, that, that again, David's sin, David's shortcoming, his, his escapade there, if you will, with Bathsheba, and she's not even named. It's just the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And we'll cover that next section, God willing, next week, where we see that it leads up through Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Fourteen generations in the first section, fourteen in the second, fourteen in the third, leading up to the birth of Jesus that we see in verses 18 and following. Why is it that Matthew begins this way? To show us that Jesus is the king, that he is the promise that God had given to his people throughout the ages. So the first thing I want us to see, if you're following along in your sermon notes there, is there is a pattern, okay? A pattern according to God's heart. The Bible tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. And I've thought a lot about that. It does not mean, I believe primarily, that David had God's heart. We know that David fell and fell mightily in sin. All right? We understand that. But God's heart... For a godly leader, God's heart to govern and shepherd and care for his own people and to do so through the means of that person that he would call to be his under shepherd, if you will. That's his heart. That's God's heart. And, and that pattern that God has for us. Let's go back to Genesis for just a second. All right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created all of that to be under his rule, his reign. And he created Adam and Eve to walk with him and to govern for him and to be stewards of that creation that he made. Right. So it was this perfect relationship of fellowship and love and care, this mutual walking in the garden in the cool of the day, as we see there. That was the that was the design that God had. Well, what did Adam and Eve do? They chose self-rule. They chose self-reliance. They chose to rebel against that leadership, you will, that, that rule of God. They rebelled against that and chose instead to go their own way instead of God's way. Did God stop being God when they chose to disobey Him? Did God stop ruling and reigning because Adam and Eve didn't cooperate? No. God's design and God's plan did not change. And later on in the Old Testament, we read in the book of Deuteronomy. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 17. We often, and I think it's a mistake for us to say, well, God never intended for his people to have a king. Well, we understand that God desired to rule, but God also saw fit to see that that rule would take place sometimes under the leadership of the one that he had chosen, the one that was the king he wanted them to be. And so God laid out this guideline for this king that he would have, this pattern that would come in those that he would choose. That he would choose. So there's this in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 17:14. here's what God said. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess and to dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Verse 18 says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers who shall, who shall set as king over you. 
You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only listen to these. Listen now to what God is saying about the heart of this king. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a copy Excuse me, in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom. He and his children in Israel. So God had this pattern. The king was to be centered on God and his word. He was to write it. He was to be a scribe and write that word out. He was to be a priest. He was to live that out and teach it in that sense. But he was to do more than just write out the law and teach law. He was to live it. He was to have it in his heart. He was to rule and judge with righteousness and justice. So he was not just to be a judge. He was to be just in himself, in his heart. That was the king. That was what God's pattern was. Well, we can go on and read throughout the rest of the Old Testament and see how that worked out, right? Sometimes well and sometimes not too well. The people got into the promised land and saw all the nations around them, saw the kings, saw the hierarchy, saw the governments, saw what was going on around them, and they desired a king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we have this account of what happened. You can turn there and and just follow along with me. I'm going to be reading several different sections. If, If you're following along in your pew Bible, it's on page 230, some of these Books may take you a little bit of time to find. Israel demanded a king. Samuel was the prophet. He was old. He had two sons. He'd appointed them to be judges, and they were losers. It was not a good situation. And so his sons did not walk in his ways, the Bible says, which is quite an understatement. They turned aside after gain. So, by the way, this requirement for the king in Deuteronomy was to be held for all those in places of leadership. They're judges later on. They're rulers. These men did not walk in the way that they should walk. And so the people came and demanded a king. And Samuel came before the Lord. And, he, you know, it just it, it broke his heart. He was displeased. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And so I'm reading in, in chapter 8. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, and so they are also doing to you, Samuel. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king whom shall reign over them. And he goes on then through the rest of this chapter to outline the warning that Samuel gave the people about the king that they wanted. And I've gone through this passage several times and I've underlined, he will take. 
And it's repeated over and over and over and over. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He'll take the best of your fields and your vineyards. He'll take the tenth of your grain. He'll take your male servants and female servants. He'll take the tenth of your flocks. He will take and he will use for himself, God said. That's what this king that you're asking for will do. In verse 18, and in that day you will cry out because of your king to whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So that was God's warning to the people's cry for a king. Had God changed his mind? Had God said, I'll just let you have your way? Well, in one sense, he had said, I will let you have your way. This is what you choose, and you'll see the fruit of that. And you'll regret it, he said. But God had not changed his promise. He had not changed his heart. And that promise was that there would be a king over his people, and that king would have that heart that we see in Deuteronomy 17. That king would have the word of God, the law of God, the desire of God, the justice and the righteousness of God at his heart. And God did not change his promise. So flip over to Second Samuel. Go forward to the, go to the right. So I guess we'll remember now God said, okay, you can have a king. And they chose Saul. And Saul looked like a king. He was taller than everybody. He was better looking than everybody. He was stronger than everybody. He had all of the outward appearance that you would ever want in your king, in the one that you would follow. Saul was named king. And yet, Saul's heart turned away from God. He did some of those things that God said, I'm warning you what your king will do. Saul did those things. But ultimately, his heart turned away from God. He disobeyed God's law. God judged Saul. And God raised up the king that he desired. And here's the promise that God made to that king that he chose. David has been called... He's been anointed. I'm going to go through this in just a second. I'm going to make a comparison between Jesus and David. And God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. All right? Notice what it says, for instance, in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. He's talking to Nathan the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed. Or excuse me, be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. And look at verse 13. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But with steadfast love will not, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And David, he says, 
Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. That was his promise. It was recounted later on in Psalm, 4, Psalm 89. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness to the skies. That was God's promise. Now we recognize the problem, right? If we're even at all familiar with the Old Testament. That instead of faithfulness, we often read about these kings. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. That was the pattern. I mean, one of David's great, 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 how many grand, great grandfathers would have been going back to this guy named Manasseh? This is a part of David's genealogy. You know, I mentioned last week my family tree, according to some, goes back to William the Conqueror. Let me tell you what, there's some shady characters in all of those generations, okay? What do we find when we go digging through our grandpa's drawers? When we go through the chest and go through the, the boxes and start pulling these things out. I've done that with my grandpa. What do we find? Well, when you do that with Jesus' family, guess what? It's no different. You start finding some of these things. Manasseh. I read this from 2 Kings chapter 21. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and he served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering. And used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. And he did much evil in sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. The kings failed. They, they weren't Deuteronomy 17 kind of men. And God saw this. God did not change his mind, though. God did not pull back his promise. God did not say, forget it, I'll start over. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. In your pew Bible, it's on page 722. So we skip ahead, past David, past the descendants. The people of God have rebelled. They've been called into exile. And God has something to say to those to those shepherds, to those who were responsible to care for, govern, commit themselves to the well-being of God's people. God has something to say to them. And the, and the whole chapter of Ezekiel 34 is God's word against those prophets, against those kings, against those shepherds. He said, you should have been feeding my sheep and instead you're feeding on them. You should have been pursuing them. You should have been taking care of the weak. And instead you've injured. You've not bound them up. You've not sought the strays. You've not done anything you should have done to care for my sheep. And God pronounced judgment on them, on those shepherds. He pronounced judgment on those rulers. And he said in verse, um, let's see, I'm in verse uh, 10. I'm against the shepherds, he said. <laughs> I will require my sheep at their hand. And I'll put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. 
God said, I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And God says, I will search out my sheep. I will seek them. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have scattered, I will will seek out my sheep that have been scattered. He says, I will feed them. I will care for them. Look at verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I'll bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So God says, I will judge, I will care for, I will shepherd, I will personally do this, God says. And look at verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince over them. I am the Lord, I have spoken And so God makes this astounding commitment that one like David, this is after David, one like David will come and shepherd. I will be their God. Look down at verse 30. And I will, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. You are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. There's his promise. There's his, his, it's just incredible to see God not give up on us. And what's his provision? Well, yes, it's David. It is this man, David, that he called from herding sheep out in the field. He took him from the sheepfolds and and put him over God's sheep. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then there in Isaiah, that prophet remembers, and the Spirit leads him to remind them and us that of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David, he says... And over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I love the next sentence. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God is fired up about getting this done. And he's going to see it done. In Isaiah 11, there will come forth a shoot. A little shoot out of a stump. And that stump is Jesse. And that root of Jesse will bear fruit. And it says the spirit of the Lord will be on him, the spirit of counsel and might, the knowledge and the fear of the Lord is talking about Jesus. So Matthew, as this new scribe, goes to great lengths to show us that Jesus is that Deuteronomy 17 kind of king. And he not only teaches the law, but he has internalized it and he has lived it out perfectly. Right. Jesus said that in Matthew 5. If you're going to understand my kingship and my kingdom, understand that I have fulfilled this law. I've not come to overturn it. I've fulfilled it. So unlike Solomon and David and all the kings before and after, he never breaks the law. And unlike Solomon and David and all those kings before him and after him, he keeps it perfectly. Not one jot, not one tittle, he says, is overlooked. That's the provision that God gave. So think for just a second about David. I read, I did, I did something this week I don't normally do. I bought a, I bought a book on Kindle. I saw a quote from this book and I, I bought it and I spent all day 
Thursday, which is my normal study, I spent all day reading it, reading that, reading this book by, by um, David Schreiner. And it was just a, a study in the book of Matthew. And he did this astounding connection. And I, I'm not going to take the time to develop this, but think for a minute about David the king. Remember his anointing? The prophet came to Jesse, pulled all the sons together, looked at all of them, and God said, none of these is the man. Don't look at the outward appearance like everybody else would. God doesn't choose that way. That's my paraphrase. David comes in, and David is anointed among his brothers as king. David was then tested. You remember that? Second, first Samuel 17, this guy named Goliath, David is tested. And he goes out there and he wins, not armed with the arms of the king or of the soldiers, but armed by God himself with the sling. David is tested and he's victorious. David is acclaimed. The crowds shouted his name. As they were coming home, when David returned, it says in 1 Samuel 18, from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands. Saul must have thought, yeah, I did, my thousands. And then the next line said, and David his ten thousands. What? A week ago, he was with the sheep in the field, and they're singing his praises. Later on in in 1 Samuel 18, it says, all of Israel and Judah loved David. He He was anointed, he was tested, he was acclaimed, and then he was opposed. When one king shows up on the picture of another king, things usually don't go well. And here King David comes, and he is opposed by a rival king, Saul. And Saul was angry, it tells us, over and over. They've ascribed to David praise that Saul felt should come to him. And, and it says in, in 1 Samuel 18, 11, that Saul eyed David from that day on. Well, it was an evil eye. He opposed him all the rest of the way. So he opposed David. David was exiled. He had to leave the city of the king. He had to run for his life. And David eventually came back to Jerusalem and took his rightful throne. So think about those steps. All right. Anointed, tested, acclaimed, opposed, exiled, and comes back. Let's think about King Jesus, the son of David, for just a second. He was chosen by God and anointed. I get that from Psalm 2. Remember that? Why do the nations rage and the kingdoms and the, and, and the people's plot in vain, it says. The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He was anointed before the beginning of time. He was anointed as God's king. All right. He was acclaimed and worshipped. Read Matthew 2. There in Matthew 2, Matthew chooses, he's the only gospel writer that does this, to give us this picture of this Jesus, the king, being worshipped. And even more profound than that, he is being worshipped by kings from the east. 
And Schreiner points out in his book, and I had never, I'd never, I'd just not seen the connection, not to this level. These kings bring gifts, right? Remember? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Wait a minute. I remember another son of David. His name was Solomon. And it tells us in 1 Kings 10 that this ruler from the, from the east, this queen of Sheba, had heard about Solomon and his kingdom and the magnificence of it. And she didn't believe it. And she came to see it for herself. If you go back and read that, she brought with her all of these camels loaded with gold and gifts for Solomon. And his kingdom and his wisdom just blew her away. Hezekiah, part of this family tree, all those treasures, all those possessions that are still belonging to the king and to the people. We remember from, from our study in Isaiah, Hezekiah, when he was approached by a foreign ruler to see all of his riches, took great pride in it and showed them everything. And the judgment of God against him was that you'll lose it all. And all those riches were hauled off. Now they come back to King Jesus. They come back from the kings. And the Magi are sometimes translated as kings. And a lot of Old Testament scholars say they would have been royalty in their country. So here kings from the east come bringing back these gifts to the king. Just like Isaiah had said, nations shall come to your light and kings shall come to your glory, he said in Isaiah 60. So here it's being fulfilled. And so the queen of Sheba came to Solomon, so these kings come to King Jesus, Solomon's son, David's son, bringing this wealth back. He was, he was worshipped. He was anointed. He was acclaimed and acknowledged by people. Remember later on in the book of Matthew, as he comes in, riding on the foal of a donkey, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's acclaimed and he is opposed. As a baby, he's opposed by a rival king. His name was Herod. Jesus came to save the children of Israel. Herod killed them. Remember that? And the kingdom of the day still opposed Jesus as he grew. The scribes and the Pharisees and the religious. As an adult, the kingdom of Jesus clashed with the kingdom of the world. It did then, it does now, it always will. Until God fulfills the prayers of his people, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Until that day, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the world will be in constant opposition. They cannot reconcile. They opposed him. And he was exiled. Jesus was exiled, just like David. He fled. Joseph and Mary took him first to Egypt. He came back to the land of Ramah. He was a Nazarene. He didn't live in Jerusalem where the king ought to be. He's, if you will, in exile away from that. He couldn't have been in a worse place if you talked to a good Jew than to be in Nazareth. Remember what they said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth, they said? And here he is in exile in Nazareth. How would he get back to his throne? David brought back. The ark was brought back. And David seated on his right. How would, David, how would Jesus get back on his throne in Jerusalem? It's on the cross. Shriner said this. Ultimately, Matthew is able to declare that Jesus is the son of David because he observed Jesus' enthronement. Jesus is born as a king, exiled, and then suffers as a wise, suffering servant. The destiny and journey of the king was always meant to lead to kingship. This is his journey, yet Matthew shows that Jesus' enthronement occurs on the cross. 
The cross is the only way to kingship for Jesus. It is his glorious and inglorious ceremony. So King Jesus does get enthroned. We call it his, his suffering. We call it this picture of his, the cross and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension. We see it all together. That's his glory. That's where he's enthroned. He's exalted up to the heavens, seated now, as Jerome said in his prayer, seated at the right hand of God, interceding and ruling as this gracious king. And if we don't get this part of what Matthew is showing us, if we don't get this part of Jesus being the fulfillment of all of God's promises throughout the Old Testament, we will not understand who he is. And and our struggle, I fear, as as Americans, especially as 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 Christians here in America, is just understanding this concept of this kingdom of God with Jesus as the king and us as his subjects, which is what we are first and foremost. That's who we are, church. We have to grasp this. And if we don't grasp it clearly and strongly, things get messy. They just really get messy. Could God say to us, like he said to Samuel, they've not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me from being king over them. No, just because mankind rejects the rule of God does not mean that he is not king. Just because we may reject, and, and, and the rebellion I fear that comes so often from, from us is more subtle. It's more subtle. You see, Israel wanted a king like the nations around them, self-reliant, proud, arrogant. And, they, and they, they wanted to shirk those responsibilities. God said, be holy as I am holy. I'm calling you to live differently and, and love differently. And so they're rejecting, in many ways, the, the rule and reign of God himself. And so when we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying that God's kingdom we're praying that what Jesus taught and lived out in Matthew's gospel, this kingdom of God is at hand. We are praying that that kingdom would be visible. And the visibility of God's invisible kingdom comes through his people, his redeemed church. It comes through us. And, and that's how his reign is visible to all. And, and, and we live, as we saw in the IMB video just a minute ago, To carry that gospel and carry that message is what we've been called to do. And we're asking people everywhere to abandon their rebellion and their self-rule and their self-autonomy and surrender to King Jesus. To bend the knee now to one that Paul says in Philippians 2, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That he is king. And, that, and that's what we're called to, to do today. And we're called to work to that end. In Revelation chapter 5, I've been kind of reading through this and reading through Revelation and just spending some time in it. There's this picture over in Revelation chapter 5. Jerome, you referenced this, this sense of fear, this sense of nervousness, this sense of anxiety that seems to be so prevalent in our nation today. It seems to be very prevalent among the people of God. And that's that's such a tragedy. That is such a tragedy. 
Because our king is not at all thwarted or wavering or in any way diminishing his rule, regardless of what may be happening here or anywhere else. And I, I was just drawn to Revelation 5, 5. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Do you hear that, church? We've been made a kingdom of priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth, and have been ransomed by God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has conquered past tense. Amen? It's done. There's no place for fear or anxiety in the lives of these people, in the lives of God's people. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus said the characteristic of his kingdom people in Matthew chapter 5, the very first characteristic, are those who humbly submit to the king. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. Those who recognize their corruption. Those who recognize they have no gift to bring. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because when we are poor in spirit, then we are what Jesus says next. We are brokenhearted and grieving. Grieving over that lack of holiness. Grieving over that sin. Grieving over the train wreck our lives come become in our own self-reliance and self-rule. And this sweet king welcomes us. Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll be you, I'll be your healer, I'll be your shepherd, I'll be your priest, I'll be your prophet. And I won't tell you to do something that I have not done myself because I have fulfilled this law. I've done it perfectly. I've paid the price of your failure. And my life is yours. Trust me. Put your faith in me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for King Jesus. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. May we be, Lord, as your church, those who are bowing the knee and confessing constantly, Lord Jesus, that you are king. And may it not be simply with words. May it be with our lives, with our allegiance, with our trust, with our confidence, with our faith. 
And Father, I pray that that would be wholly contagious around us. People would see our hope, see our confidence, see our faith, see our reliance on Jesus. They would see our love for you, Lord, and our love for others. And they would want to know the reason for the hope that we have. And Father, may we be quick to point them to our King. May we be quick, God, to invite them into your kingdom. And Father, we pray that you would you'd work there to bring that about. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.